You need to be a good Samaritan. You need to be a good neighbor. It's a famous story, isn't it? Um, give, us a, give us a nod if you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, or shake your head at me if you're like, no, no. Okay. It's a pretty famous story, isn't it? You'll know, of course, of some of the wonderful charities that have been inspired by the story of the Good Samaritan. You'll think, of course, of the Samaritans, or maybe even uh, the humanitarian charity, the Samaritan's Purse. Maybe like me, you grew up hearing this story. Um, I went to a Church of England primary school and the Good Samaritan was rolled out again and again as a tale of how to be a good person, a person of good morals. I'm told that today in, in schools, uh, that as part of anti-bullying week, this is a favourite. Bring out the story, the Good Samaritan. So you know it, probably. But what is it really about? I mean, is it really a story merely of a sort of moralism? Is it a story about good behavior? I mean, why did Jesus tell this story? And why did Luke record it for us in his gospel? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' parables in Luke's gospel. And we've called this little series Tales of the Unexpected. You can see the series in the the term card if you want to grab hold of one of those this morning. Uh, We're looking at it, we call it Tales of the Unexpected, because Jesus' stories are often far more radical than we realise. Indeed, these stories were never meant to be dumbed down for school assemblies, I would argue. (laughs) No, these stories are totally radical, they are shocking, and they should turn our lives upside down, if we've really understood them. So the Good Samaritan, what is it all about? Well, I want to suggest this morning that It has nothing to do with mere moralism. In fact, I want to suggest to us today that, in fact, it's it's even got very little or hasn't got much to do with being a good neighbour, at least not in the main, anyway. I want to suggest to us this morning that this famous parable is first and foremost about eternal life and thereafter about neighbourliness. In fact, I, I... I think this story is going to tell us that it's, in fact, only when we abandon moralism and earning our way with God, it's only then when we throw ourselves on God's mercy that we'll find any attempt at neighbourliness really possible. So here's this famous story. And it centres around a conflict between Jesus and a lawyer, a lawyer who asked two questions. And we're going to use those questions this morning as our, as our headings. We're going to follow those questions as we seek to unpack what this story is all about. So look with me first, please, this morning at question number one. Question number one, uh, it's there in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. This famous story comes off the back of this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a story about eternal life. Now, of course, the question is, why why does this lawyer, this um, teacher of the law, come up to Jesus and ask this question? And he's clearly um, upset by Jesus. We're told, aren't we? Look at verse 25. He's come to put Jesus to the test. This isn't an honest question, is it? This is a tricky question. This is a question designed to trap Jesus. 
But why does this teacher of the law have it in for Jesus? And why does he want to test Jesus? Well, we might want to look at the context, mightn't we? Look at the pages before us. Look at, for example, at chapter 9, verse 51. What's going on with Jesus? Well, his time to go, his time to be taken up is drawing near. Jesus knows he needs to go to the cross. So he's turned to face Jerusalem. He set his face there. He's on a mission. He must go to the cross. Actually, interestingly, notice the first thing he does is annoy a bunch of Samaritans by going south. It's notable, isn't it? But he's, he's going to the, the cross, and as he goes, he's taking his disciples with him, and he's going to train them in what it means to follow him in his mission. He sends out 72 disciples on a mission, and there's mixed results. Sure, demons are cast out. There's proclamation of the good news. It looks good, but some people don't accept Jesus. Even some of the wisest and most learned people, Chorazin and the people of these places. And so what's going on? In these verses, well, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to cope with mission. How to cope when people seem to reject the Lord Jesus. God is still at work even then. You see, the disciples aren't to rejoice in whether the mission goes well. The disciples are to rejoice in their names being written in the book of life. Look at, um, for example, 10 verse 23 in our, in our setting. Jesus turns to the disciples and says to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. He's teaching his disciples that you'd never know anything of Jesus. You'd never know anything of God if God hadn't first been at work. You see, the fact that some accept Jesus, the fact that some reject, it's a work of God. We need a work of God. No one's going to get eternal life without a miracle of God's doing. And I think that's what upsets this lawyer. This morning, he turns up, he stands up, he puts Jesus to the test. What's he saying? He's saying, no, Jesus, I'm still going to get in my own way. I don't need God's work. I don't need God's forgiveness. Everyone knows the big question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, Jesus, I'm not rejecting you because God hasn't worked in my life. I'm rejecting you because I know I need to do it myself, says this lawyer. I'm going to keep the law. And so Jesus plays him at his own game. He asks him a question. Look at verse 26. Jesus replies to this teacher of the law. Well, go on then. What does the law say? There's a bit of a principle here, I think, for us. I'm sure you've had people um, ask you questions, if you're a Christian here this morning. And um, sometimes you face questions, maybe they've been aggressive. Maybe you face questions and you thought, I'm not sure, is this really an honest question? As a leaf to take, I think, our, our Jesus book here. Reply to a question with a question. Don't, 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 don't let yourself be trapped, but come into a dialogue. That's what Jesus does. And actually, this dialogue actually ends up with the lawyer <laughs> more in trouble than, than Jesus, as we'll see. Jesus asks the question, what does the law say? And the lawyer now, he gives an answer that's at least at first appearance, quite good. Look at it there in verse 27. Now the lawyer answered, here's what the law says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, this indeed is a summary of God's law. It's taken out of the book of Deuteronomy that's riffing off of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Oh, it is true. We're to love the Lord our God with all our being. We're to love our neighbor made in God's image. That is true. But is that really what God's law says about eternal life? Is that the best summary of God's law? I wonder what you would say if someone said to you, what is God's law? Do you think the man's got it right? It's a cheeky, cheeky trick, cheeky um, question of mine. Keep a finger in Luke 10. Just turn with me for a moment to Exodus chapter 20. Is this man's answer really the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Is it the best summary of the law? Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments in the Bible. Just turn there with me for a minute. Now, how, my question is this. What does the law say? How does the Ten Commandments begin? It says this. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Slavery. You see, this man thinks... God's law is a checklist. But it's not at all. This man thinks you must love the Lord your God or else, as it were. But no, the Bible always taught. It's not obey me and I'll rescue you. God's already rescued you. I am the Lord your God who's brought... I've rescued you. It's now that I've rescued you, here's how you can know me and love me and enjoy relationship with me. The law in the Old Testament was never supposed to be hoops to jump through to get eternal life. It always came after life with God. It had already been achieved. It was the meaning of enjoying life. It's not obey and now be saved. It's you're saved and now you can love God. It's not do this, do this, do this. It's I've done this. Now enjoy relationship. Jesus asked this man, what does the law say? Come back with me to Luke 10. And the law says, what does the law really say? The law says you need a rescuer. You need a rescue. That's what the law really says. I mean, in one sense, this lawyer's got the law right, of course. Of course, we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbours. Of course we do. But he's got the place of that law completely wrong. It doesn't come first. It comes after. Comes after God's wonderful rescue and rescue. And so Jesus, with something I think of a twinkle in his eye, turns to this law and says, Yeah, okay, you've answered correctly, in a manner of speaking. And Jesus says, and, and I think you can see the glint, verse 28. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Go on then, do this, and you will live. Because, of course, yes, if you could keep God's law perfectly, Yes, you wouldn't need forgiveness. And you wouldn't need a rescue. But good luck with that, says Jesus. You'll never do it. And the man knows it, I think, because he then goes on to ask another question. See, here's this man with this question. He's asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It must be about me doing things, thinks this lawyer. He asks this legal question. But really, it's a laughable question, isn't it? How do I inherit eternal life, he asks. Well, can you really make yourself an heir of anything? Can you force an inheritance? Do you think you could make God 
give you eternal life <laughs> like that. It's a nonsense, isn't it? Can you live a life where you never need God's rescue? Can you live a life where you never need God's forgiveness? No, it's just not possible, isn't it? This man had hoped, here's how, uh, uh, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's the law? He gives the answer. He hopes Jesus is going to reply and say, oh, yeah, you got the Yeah, well done, mate. You're a good, yeah, you're in heaven. Good. That's what this man hopes for. He hopes he's going to get a pat on the back. You're on the inside. That's what we hope for, by the way, isn't it? So often we want people to think that we are heavenly, don't we? The good guys. But Jesus says, look at the law. Love the Lord your God with all your being. From your head to your heart, to your emotions, to your very desires. Can you do it? Of course we can't. It is silly to ask that question. I like the way um, Pastor Don Carson illustrates this. He, he says, have you done your tax return? Actually, for some of us, we might remember that deadline's coming up quite soon. Um, have you been totally honest in your tax return? Have you put everything in it? Well, you might be a cheat, mightn't you? You might be lying about it. You might think it's only a little cheat. It's only a little thing. No one will ever know. And of course, the inland revenue might never know. But God will know. And you'll have offended him by lying and cheating in his world. You see, with every commandment, we... <laughs> We always break that first commandment, don't we? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. In every sin, I always break that commandment, don't I? He gives another illustration. Have you been faithful in your marriage, he asks. Maybe you've committed an affair and your spouse might never find out. But God knows. He knows how you treated one of his own he knows how you've treated him and his concerns and his gifts. And you'll have broken his commands. And you won't have loved him. And you see, it's the same in all the things that we do, isn't it? We say, it's only this, it's only that. But we always break the first commandment. Do this and you'll live, Jesus says. Good luck with that. And the man knows it. He knows it. So you see, as the disciples watch, as Jesus confronts this man, as, this, as they engage in this dialogue, the, people are noticing, the disciples are noticing people reject Jesus. And why? Because, because, because we want to insist that we can earn our way with God. But you see here, it's, it really is it's laughable, isn't it? And in many ways, it is pitiable. It's deeply warped, and it's never what God taught And for Christians reading this passage, what do we need to see? Well, we need to say, see the confidence of Jesus. We need to see the clarity here, don't we? The Bible really does teach that we are really saved by Jesus' work and his work alone. And our friends and neighbours won't be saved by their good works, will they? They will only be saved by God's intervention. By what he would do. There's a mission, there's mixed results. But God's at work and it's still always about his grace and his doing. It's his work and not ours. Well, this lawyer wants to wriggle out of that. <laughs> and that's where our second question comes in. So look at this second question because this is key 
to the Good Samaritan. Look at the second question, question number two, our second heading this morning, verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor then? See, when Jesus has this dialogue with this guy, he says to him, doesn't he, Go and do likewise. It's as if he says to this lawyer, yeah, you haven't kept the law, so you better, better go and have a go then. <laughs> if, you think you can, if you think you can, good luck. He doesn't affirm him. He doesn't say, well done, you are a lawkeeper. He says there's a bit of work to do, isn't there, mate? So this man is gutted. He hasn't had the pat on the back. Look, verse 29, he desires to justify himself. So he, he, he says, well, look, I, I, can, I can get the pat on the back. We just, I think I've loved God. Maybe I haven't done so well on loving my neighbour, so let's just talk about who loving your neighbour is. I mean, let's move the goalpost a bit. I mean, come on, it can't be everyone, can it? Loving your neighbour. Do you see, when we try to earn our way with God, we can't do it. Before God's perfect ways, what do we seek to do? What does this lawyer seek to do? He seeks to lower the bar. To make up some rules. To redraw the boundaries. I am a good person. I can be a good person. If we say I don't really have to be kind to everyone. Now isn't that what we do by the way? I know I do it. I'll be patient with everyone in the mad Christmas season. So long as it doesn't have to include my mum. I'll say I'm good enough for God. So long as it doesn't include those people who... You know, I just always seem to run out of patience with them. That's the way we expect things to be. That's the way, way we, we, we play a game as if that's how it works. Who is a neighbour? Let's change the rules so that I can do things my way. So that I don't need God. Jesus won't let us have it that way. And so Jesus determines to ask another question. And here's where the Good Samaritan comes in. The Good Samaritan is the preamble to Jesus' question. It's the setup for the question that's going to get us. <laughs> A question that turns everything upside down. The question's there in verse 36. So let's see how this plays out. The man's asked, all right then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? At this point, we might expect Jesus to tell a story about an unexpected neighbor. We might expect Jesus to tell a story about a half, half beaten, uh, uh, one of those rotten Samaritans, half dead in a ditch. We might expect Jesus to tell a story about, oh yeah, look, even if you find someone you really don't like in a ditch, you ought to rescue them. We expect Jesus to tell us, who, who is my neighbor? Oh, even one of them. But that's not the story Jesus tells. Look at the story Jesus tells. Verse 30. A man was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here's someone who's been at the temple, a Jew. And he's been and done his sacrifices and he's presumably he's on his way home. We're supposed to put our feet in the shoes of that man. The lawyer isn't supposed to think of himself as the superior one, the one who's going to do the rescuing. He's supposed to see himself in this man coming back from the temple. That's who he is. That's who most of the Israelites are. He is a man on his way home. And the point is, it could be you. 
He's on a dangerous road. He gets mugged. He gets robbed. And he gets left half dead. Now, let's not beat about the bush here. Half dead means, means half dead. This guy is in a ditch. He's on the pavement and he's bleeding out. I don't know how many pints of blood he's lost. But another one and he's finished. The lights in his eyes will go out. This man is dying. And his face has been so smashed in, you'd hardly recognize who he was. You couldn't tell who he was. He can barely breathe and he can barely utter a whimper. And Jesus says to us, picture that. Picture that bruised face. Picture that whimper. And see your face. Don't think of yourself as the rescuer. See yourself in the ditch with the bruises. Are you there? Now he says, imagine that, as luck would have it, a priest was coming down the road. It's like breaking down, phoning the RAC, and they say, oh, don't worry, the the guys are only at the next service station along. It's like, wow, my luck's coming. (laughs) Fantastic. The good guys are here, they're near. Here's the priest, he brings worship to God, he brings the sacrifices to God. There's no one closer to God than him. If anyone's going to love their neighbor, it's going to be the priest. But look at verse 31. And when he saw him, when he saw us, he saw you, he passed by on the other side. The priest sees the man. It's not like he can say he didn't notice. He sees him. And we don't know what goes through his mind, but he he crosses the road. So that this man, whoever he is, well, the priest is far enough away. He's not my problem. He doesn't have to be my neighbor. And I think we're supposed to think at that point in the ditch. How are, you, how, how, how are you feeling about that? Presumably the other day in the temple, this priest was offering sacrifices for you in the temple. And now he ignores you. Gut-wrenching hypocrisy. It sting. Doesn't it hurt? Doesn't it make you angry? He ignores you. And why? I don't know. Doesn't want to be ceremonially unclean. I mean, it's awful, isn't it? But fear not, as luck would have it, there's not just a, the priest has gone by, but now there's a Levite. The Levites were the second lot in the inner circle. These were the guys who worked in the temple supporting the priest. They'd be the musicians. They'd be, shake your hand on the door on the way in. Maybe this man had even met this Levite the other day. Great news, he'll help. But again, the Levite passes by on the other side as if he'd never seen the injured party. And so now for the third person in the story. And you'd think it would be, okay, we've had a priest, we've had a Levite, so the third person to come along would just be an ordinary Israelite person. But it's not, is it? It's a Samaritan. The Jews thought of those Samaritans in the northern lands as half-breeds. They'd intermarried with foreigners. Uh, they, they rejected King David. They only read the first part of their Bible because they'd given up on all the, the southern kings. This was one of the biggest ethnic tensions ever. I mean, think of ethnic rivalries and tensions. I mean, think presumably of how Ukrainians feel towards Russians today. Think about the Basques and the Spanish, the Turks and the Armenians, the Palestinians and the Israelis. Think of ethnic tensions in the US. Think about that kind of animosity. And that's what we've got. I'm told that um, a Jewish person wouldn't even use a Samaritan toilet. That's how much they hated Samaritans. It was that bad. 
and now there is a Samaritan on the road. Imagine someone you hated that much and that person being your only help. But look what happens when the Samaritan sees the man and, and, and think us. He has compassion. He binds the wounds. He applies the correct first aid, oil to soften the wound, wine to disinfect it. He puts the man on his own horse, on his own seat. This Samaritan acts like a servant. And then he takes him to a house and he passes his care over with funds to do so. And by, by the way, at this point, don't think of an, uh, necessarily an ordinary inn. Uh, don't think of the NHS either. Think more of the US medical system of private health insurance. If you turn up in A&E and you haven't got the funds to pay your bill, well, they'll put you back together again with a huge debt round your neck. And that would have been the case here. Oh, he could be rescued, but if he couldn't pay for his care, well, he'd be the person's slave. You see, this Samaritan is incredible. He's not only saved this man, but he set him free as well. Now, all this is said, this story, to set up Jesus' questions. That we're not to think of ourselves as the superior ones, the ones who draw the boundaries. We're to think of ourselves as being in the ditch. And that is actually where we are before God, isn't it? As we've just seen. So Jesus says to this man, verse 36, which of these three, you're you're the one in the ditch, by the way, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the answer so upsets this lawyer, he can't even bear to say the man's name, who he is. Look at how he replies in verse 37. He won't say, Samaritan, oh, it's the one who, who showed him mercy. Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He is removing all the lawyer's assumptions. The lawyer assumes he has no needs and only obligations to meet. Who must I be a neighbor to? Who is my neighbor? I'll decide and then I'll work that out and then I'll be in heaven. And Jesus says, you need to realize that before you meet anyone's needs, you have needs that need meeting. Put yourself in the ditch. Because that's where you are. You are bleeding out. And who, when they're bleeding out in the ditch, gets to choose who would be their neighbor? He doesn't have much choice, does he? He might have wanted the priest, might have wanted the Levite. They haven't been much help, have they? He hasn't got a choice. He has to accept the one that he doesn't want to accept, the Samaritan. And of course, this is just a point to that lawyer. Do you you want to reject Jesus? You don't have much choice, do you? You're in the ditch. See, if you're trying to earn your way with God, you'll be drawing boundaries. You'll be trying to make God's law achievable. And in the end, you'll just be living for yourself. How can I get to heaven? And it'll be all about you. And even if you do do things that look like you're loving your neighbor, you won't be really, will you? Because it's all about you. It's all about me. You see, it is only when we have received mercy. It's only when you you see that you need someone to be a neighbor to you. That we're able to freely give ourselves to others. Without drawing lines and borders. 
You can only love others as you have been loved yourself. When someone has freely loved you as Christ has. See, Luke tells this story that, that Jesus has said. And I think he can't help but show us this Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. It is a picture of God's love for us. This Samaritan shows compassion. That word, is, that word is at the center of that section. And that word is the exact same word spoken of the father in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The Samaritan shows compassion. Christ has shown us compassion. Christ is the one who, as it were, pours out the oil and wine. Language of sacrifice too. Christ is the one who really has become a servant, who has put himself in our place and put us in his seat. He is the one who has paid the cost. He is the one who has set us free by his atoning death and and sacrifice for us. See, it's only as we've received from him can we go and love like him. In the end, Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and receive mercy. And thereafter, show mercy. Stop trying to earn it. Then you'll know eternal life. Then you'll know free love without boundaries. And then you'll be able to show free love without boundaries. Otherwise, it's all about you. Otherwise, it's all about you and your earned rescue and so that you can get your pat on the back. Otherwise, it's all about what you have capacity to do. About who you can serve and who you can't. And Christ has never done that, has he? Christ never said who is who, who then is going to be my neighbour? He has loved the lost and the rebels. So Jesus is at work. He's showing mercy. And that mercy comes from him and it is at his discretion. And it is for everyone and for all. Even if the wise and the learned reject it. His kingdom is not about those who supposedly can perform. It is not about those who have the right background or come from the right, right place. Jesus told his disciples, didn't he? Go and make disciples and go to Judea and go to Samaria and go to the very ends of the earth. Here is a picture of Christ's kingdom, of even the Samaritans being brought in. The question is, receive mercy. Will you receive mercy? And will you be part of what God is doing and what his kingdom is like? You see, this parable isn't about moralism. It isn't go and be a good neighbor and have another obligation to meet and something else to weigh you down. No, this story is supposed to make us rejoice that Christ is saving his people when no one else would. He is doing a new, fabulous thing, all of his grace, all of his mercy. And so we don't reject that saying, I'd I'd rather earn my way. We say, wow, how can I be part of that? Because I've been saved by him. I want to know him. I want to serve him. I want to sit at his feet. I want to follow him. So how do we respond? Well, it'll depend who we are. 
Some of us this morning are like the lawyer. In other words, we're saying, I want to earn my way with God. And we're holding pretty fast to that. So that'll be some of us this morning. Now you say, that's not me. Well, think on this. Do you log your performance of good deeds? Do you think of yourself as having good days and bad days? Well, it might be you're trying to draw your boundaries, like the teacher of the law. Do you think of some people as being in heaven and some people as they'll never be there? Because there's certain things you've got to do. There's a certain person you've got to be to get there. Do you find it difficult to accept gifts? Do you always seek to repay people when they do a kindness to you? It might be that you're like this teacher of the law. Do you literally never let anyone help you? It could be that you are like this lawyer who wants to justify himself, wants his pat on the back, who doesn't want forgiveness, wants to do it his way. Well, if that's us, if that's you this morning, we need to understand, we need to see that we can see what's right and wrong. We can know what God's law teaches. We can know God's ways. But that doesn't mean we're right with God, does it? We just throw ourselves on Christ's mercy. We need his forgiveness. If that's us this morning, we need to appreciate again and see afresh how laughable it is when we seek to earn our way with God. We need to really consider these things. I mean, notice, you know, when the lawyer considered it, he realized he couldn't do it. He needed to change the rules of the game. We need to see that being focused on our own moral performance is ultimately self-serving. It's ultimately not just ridiculous, but actually hideously ugly, as the priests and the Levites show us. It really is religious hypocrisy. And if that's us this morning, we've been exposed. It never leads us really to become a good neighbor, because we never let Christ be our neighbor. We need to find mercy. We need to find it in Christ and return to Christ. Some of us are like the lawyer. But some of us this morning realize that we do need mercy. Some of us are like the man in the ditch. And if that's you, praise God. You've thrown yourself on Christ's mercy. You've received him and his rescue. What does that mean for us? Well, we've, we've accepted the one that others would reject. We've accepted him as our only help, and he is the only help for our world. And he is declaring here that his kingdom is for all. You are not to draw boundaries. You are not to draw lines. There is no one that we should think of as a non-neighbor. Is there really such a thing as a non-person? Do you catch yourself sometimes drifting past people? Do you find yourself in the supermarket oddly walking past people? You don't you catch yourself doing anything. Why am I I'm not, not going to be near those people? Do you think in your head, ah, uh, Lucy, she's not the type of person who would become a Christian, so I won't even bother developing relationship, sharing Christ with her? That can be us so often. Can't it? But we must ground ourselves in Christ's mercy. Christ Christ has saved us by his cross, by his resurrection. He's bound our wounds. He's carried us to safety. He's paid our debts. He's set us free. And now we have a freedom knowing that he's showing mercy. Knowing that there's none 
that we could ever rule out because we haven't been ruled out. He didn't cross the road for me, did he? He came to me. So now I can go and do likewise. I can love my neighbor, but not as a burden, not as an item on a checklist, but as an act of love, an act of the love that I've received first. This parable is not about moralism. It's about the rescue, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that love, I can share it. So friends, don't be discouraged in the mission when there's mixed results. Don't don't be thinking, ah, this is no good. Jesus is revealing himself. Jesus is at work by his grace and you'll be surprised at the sorts he is saving. And the question really for us at the end of this has to be, are you ready for it? Are you ready for what Christ would do? He has not rejected us. We will not reject any. For we are recipients of his amazing grace. Shall we pray? Loving Father, thank you that we are free of moral burden. Thank you that this story isn't about what so often we've been taught. Thank you that we're saved by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the confidence. Thank you for the courage. Thank you for the freedom that that gives us. Father, we pray that we might go and respond with free service, just as he has freely served us. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.